please take a seat. And please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, which is what we're looking at tonight. It's on page 928 of the Church Bibles. Now this week I was reminded of one of my favourite quotes from the Chronicles of Narnia. It was buried inside a... One of the study projects that one of our ministry trainees was doing, for some reason they threw this quote in there in the middle of a very serious study project. There it was, Aslan, the great figure in the Narnia series, the saviour of Narnia, the one who gives his life for the Narnians, the one who rescues them, the God figure really that C.S. Lewis is depicting there. It's a simple quote, Aslan is on the move. And every time I hear that quote, and it's been a while since I heard it, but reminded, as I said, uh, this week, I love it because it reminds me of the God we meet in the Scriptures, Uh, our God who is our King. Our King is on the move. He is active in our world. He is bringing victory to this world. The King is on the move. Our God is the King who says uh, in the book of Isaiah, he says, "'My purposes will stand and I will do all that I please.'" What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Our king is on the move and nothing can stop him. So if this is true, and it is true, if this is God's declaration of himself, this king who is on the move in our world, where can we see it? Uh, If his purposes cannot be thwarted, if his rule is untrammeled, unstoppable, if he does as he pleases, uh, what is he doing in our world? Surely we'd be able to tell what he's doing from the effects his activity is having. We'd look around and we'd see his impact, his unstoppable impact in our world. And so look around your world tonight. What is he doing in our world? Is he bringing an end to sickness in our day? Well, yes, in part he's doing that, isn't he? And he is using a number in this room with their gifts with the talents that he has given them to bring an end to sickness and suffering. But he's not bringing a total end to sickness, is he, in our day? Not by a long shot, and some of you will know that all too well. Is he bringing an end to uh, the devastation uh, that natural forces can have in our world? Well, again, yes, in part. He holds back the wind and the waves against us. He, He keeps the earth spinning. He stops the sun from destroying us. But again and again there are signs that he is not ending the ravages of natural forces in our day and have we not seen that horrifically this week in Haiti? It's hard to comprehend what has gone on there but surely it tells us that this is not ultimately what God is doing in our day, not what is untrembled, unstopped. Is he about no more poverty? Is he bringing an end to all violence in our day? Is he bringing an end to wars? Is he bringing an end to terror or global warming? Is he leading the English football team to World Cup victory in 2010? Not likely. (laughs) No, in all of these purposes and many more that we might think of, they are somewhat frustrated, aren't they? Incomplete. So surely if, if his rule, if his will to do as he pleases is unstoppable, if his purposes stand unchallenged, then none of these things can be ultimately what he is doing in our day. So what is it? What is God doing? What is coming from the throne of heaven that cannot be stopped? 
What is God doing in our day? We'll have a look at Jonah and see where we were last week. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 and you will see what God is doing in our day. There it is, declared from Jonah's lips as he stands on the shore having been rescued by his God. Salvation is from the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, save children of God and that is who we are. That is what God is doing in our day. The God who is on the move in our day is bringing salvation and nothing can stop him. It's as uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, speaking of our day, the day we live in, he says, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. That's what this day is all about. Salvation is where we see God's untrammeled purposes at play in our world, circa 2010. There we see the sheer power of his grace brought about in our world, sweeping our world unstopped. I was thinking about that this week and it reminded me of an experience that I've had a couple of times in Australia over the summers called the King Tide. Quite often in the summer the waves in the ocean are far stronger and bigger than at other times in the year and every now and then they have what is called the King Tide. Uh, which is where the, the, the high tide usually gets to one point and everybody sets up, uh, sets up their towels and their beach umbrellas and everything on the beach knowing the tide will only get so far and happily play away. But then every now and then is the king tide. And when the king tide comes, it just keeps coming in. And it's a wonderful thing to watch as you see all these people suddenly panic and grab their umbrellas and towels and race further up and then set up again and think, we'll be safe here. And then the king tide keeps coming. And it keeps coming and sometimes makes it all the way way into the car park and you see people racing off in cars as the tide keeps rolling on. And that, for me, as I look at Jonah, is what we are seeing, the king tide of God's grace. His gracious purpose of salvation is just like that. As if we were standing on the beach, happily standing on the shore, well away from the water, seemingly at a safe distance, perhaps dipping our toe in every now and then. But on a king tide, the water just keeps coming. The waves lap closer and closer until all of a sudden you find yourself swept up in it. And the effects are unmistakable. We've seen it all the way through this book. I hope you've seen it. The sailors, uh, we saw it with them in chapter 1. Far from God they were. Dipping their toe in his grace, if you like. Uh, Everything they experienced in life. Breath. Uh, their lives, their their jobs, you name it. It all came from God's grace, dipping their toe, tasting his gifts, but knowing nothing of the giver, nothing of his purposes, nothing of his mercy. And then all of a sudden in chapter 1, the tide of God's grace rushed on them and they are rescued by God. And you see the effect in chapter 1, verse 16, their lips are filled with the praises of this saviour king. And have we not seen it in Jonah's life too, the progress of God's purposes being unstoppable? God's word had already come to him. He was a prophet and yet he turned and ran. But the tide kept coming, didn't it? Kept following him as he fell further and further down and away from God and his purposes. It followed him even to the pit, even to the grave and raised him up. And now, just like the sailors, saved, he cries out, Lips filled with praise for this king. Salvation is from the Lord is his song in chapter 2 verse 9. But remember this is a king tide. The effect of God's purposes, the effect of his grace doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with Jonah on the shore and that's what chapter 3 is going to show us just 
how far grace takes us. You see, as we turn to Jonah chapter 3 together tonight, we we see that Jonah wasn't saved to stand and sing songs on the shore any more than you were saved just to stand here tonight and sing songs together. No, the song of salvation is meant to be heard much further afield than that. Have a look at chapter 3 verse 1 and you'll see how far grace takes Jonah. See what happens next as he stands there on the shore. Do you see it there? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. See the effect of God's grace. See three things that happened to Jonah even beyond this amazing rescue we saw last week. Firstly, see how grace, this grace that has saved him, now makes him a servant. Having been saved, he is now called to serve his God. He is rescued for one purpose and that is to heed the word of this God, his master, his king. Grace gives him a second chance to do that. Do you see that? It's very subtle there in in verse 1 but we're meant to not miss it. This is the second time this has happened. God is a God of second chances, of third chances, of fourth chances. Do you see the extent of God's salvation? God gives us these second and third and fourth chances and how good it is that he does. He forgives us and empowers us to grasp how wonderful his rescue is that we may declare it, that we may declare the praises of the God who has brought it about. Grace makes you a servant of that king. And secondly, grace that has saved Jonah makes him and gives him a mission. You see, God didn't save you or I to be his cheer squad as the king marches on with grace in our world. No, we're in the game. He doesn't say to Jonah or to us, yes, you're forgiven, yes, I will rescue you from my judgment, but you're no use to me after what you've done. No, Jonah is forgiven and he is called again, arise and go to Nineveh. Having been raised up from the pit, he is to go. It's it's the logical next step uh, of salvation. In fact, here it's a command to him in verse 2. Rise up and go. And we've already seen uh, the message that he is called to go with earlier in our book. If you flick back to chapter 1 verse 2, you will see the message he was originally called to go with and it's the same one. He is to go to tell the Ninevites that this king, the king not just of Jonah, the king of every city, even Nineveh, is on the move, that he has seen their rebellion and he calls them to turn away and turn back to him. And is that not what he has raised you and I to do also? To go to our world, a world who just like us are in desperate need of a second chance, in desperate need of being shown the same grace that you have been shown. It's God's grace that gives us that mission. The grace that saves gives you a mission. And thirdly, the grace that saves calls us to obedience. Why obey this word? I mean, it seems strange, isn't it? Uh, Back in chapter 1, this same word came to Jonah and he ran away. Now there's no running, not even a hint of it. He obeys exactly what he is told to do. Why? Well, he's learnt the painful way, hasn't he? He's learnt that God is Lord of all, even the land and the sea. He has learnt that there is no reason to disobey this God and every reason to submit to him and to his word of grace. 
God wanted Jonah, as he wants us to, to listen to him, to obey what we hear and then to speak that word, Jonah obeyed and went. Verse 3. See, this is what it means to obey God. Direct following of his word, taking him at his word, trusting that word, trusting him and walking in his commandments. That's what obedience looks like. Trusting that he will lead you where you need to go. He will lead you there for your great good and for his glory, even if he's leading you to Nineveh. Do you see the power of his gracious word, this king tide of salvation at work? Do you see the progress it makes in a person's life? From being someone who rejects the word of the Lord, from being someone who is under death and judgment, to being someone who is rescued, whose lips are then filled with praise to declare the wonderful salvation this God brings. It's the natural flow of God's purposes in salvation. It's all the way through the scriptures. We were looking at it this morning in John chapter 4. We saw it with this woman who knew nothing of the Lord, nothing of his grace, who meets Jesus and her life is turned around and the next thing she does, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Is he the king? She can't help but speak of it. We see it earlier in the Gospel of John with, uh, with my favourite disciple, Andrew, Uh, who the very first thing he does when he meets the king, he races and tells his brother and says, come meet the king. It's the natural next step after salvation. We see it uh, with the Apostle Paul who says of his life in 2 Corinthians 5, he, the worst of sinners, says, the king's love has compelled me. I must call out to you, be reconciled. He can't help it. It's the natural next step of one who has been saved. You see, all the way through the Bible, this, this progression that grace makes, and have we not seen it amongst our own church family? I've got a, a neighbour that I had until recently who I saw this very thing happen with uh, a few years ago, knew nothing of God, nothing of his salvation, and now rescued and can't help but tell people about it. Sometimes you want to calm him down a little bit and say, just steady on. Amazing. I've seen it with uni students who, again, uh, have come to Sheffield knowing nothing of the gospel and now can't help but drag their friends along to to things and talk to their friends about this gospel. This is what salvation does. This is what grace does, the king tide of his grace. This is what God is doing in our day. He is about salvation. He says, my purposes will stand. I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. His grace saves you from sin and death. It makes you his servant. It gives you his mission. It calls for obedience and it says, go. With news that our sin has reached his sight. With news that this is a God of second chances. News of grace. That's why this mission that we're joining uh, with many in our nation. The passion for life in March is so important. This is the main game of what our God is doing in our day. God is on the move. The King is on the move and he calls us to go. That's the wonderful picture we have in Jonah 3. But the second thing we are told is this. He tells us what will happen if we do go for him. If we do answer this call, if we do follow this path that salvation takes us on to go to our city for him with this message. 
We see in Jonah 3 what will happen when we go to the city. Let me show you four things that I can guarantee will happen because God says it. Firstly, he will have a right to be heard. Let me ask you, when do you think you've earned the right to share the gospel with a friend? When do you think you're at the point where you've earned the right to talk to them about the gospel? Is it a timing thing? Is it, it just takes time in a relationship to get to the point where you've earned the right to share this message? Or perhaps it's a trust thing. When they trust you, when you're a trusted friend, then you can share this message. Or maybe it's about showing enough interest in them, in, the, in what they're about and what they think, that that's when you can share this message. Or perhaps it's only when they ask. That's when I give an answer for the hope I have. Before then, I don't have the right. Well, watch what happens when Jonah takes God's message to Nineveh, a city he knows very little of. Nineveh is no backwater. It is a great city, we're told in this chapter. In fact, we're told uh, here in verse 3 that a visit to to Nineveh takes three days. By the time we get to chapter 4, we're told there's 120,000 people who live there. For that era, this is a massive important city. Nineveh was the capital of the superpower that was Assyria and we're told it takes three days to visit because that's the way diplomacy worked in cities like that. What you would do is day one you would arrive in the city, you would settle in, uh, you would make your appeal to be heard and you'd establish your credentials, you'd show your, your, your credentials for being there and then day two, if you got that far, you would be received and you would make your appeal. And only on day three would you get your response and then formally be sent on your way with whatever that response was. It took three days to do these things. That's the way you deal with a great important city like Nineveh. But here's the shock of verse four. As great a city as Nineveh is, when confronted with the God of all creation, of all cities, the normal rules of three-day diplomacy do not apply. Yahweh has no need to settle in. He has no need to establish his credentials. They are all around them and he has no need to ask for a hearing. And so verse 4, on the first day Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, God and his message have a right to be heard in this city. He owns this city. In fact, he owns every inch of planet earth. He says, mine. He's not in a power sharing agreement with humanity. It is as Jesus says, uh, the resurrected Jesus at the end of Matthew, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And Christian, you are his ambassador, the servant of the king, called to go to his territory with his message. Now this doesn't mean that when we go to our city or to our friends or to our family, we go with a bullish approach. We, we don't enter relationships like we own the place. We own nothing. You are a servant of the king and so you approach humbly as a servant would. You approach graciously as a servant of a gracious God does and you approach gently as he calls you to. And it may well be that you need to choose your time to speak carefully. It will be of great benefit to you if you are a trusted friend when that message is heard. And you should be deeply interested in the person you are speaking to because your God is. And you should give an answer for the hope you have. But you do not need permission to speak of this king. 
in his country. You do not need permission to speak a message of grace to a world desperately in need of it. You do not need to earn the right to speak of such things because the message is not about you. It's about him and he says go for he has a right to be heard. The second thing I can guarantee will happen if we go to our city, you see again in verse 4 and that is his message is clear. If we are faithful as Jonah is here, if we are obedient with the message he gives us for our city, then that message will ring out loud and clear as it did in Nineveh. On the first day Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's a great sermon, isn't it? Only eight words. Imagine that on a Sunday night. But within these words is God's clear intent. In his holiness, in his justice, God must act. God has seen their wickedness and he grieves their wickedness. But he will not stand back and watch the disaster of wickedness unfold. He will come. The king is on the move. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Let me say, don't miss something hugely significant in Jonah's small sermon here. The very last word he says, 40 days and he will overturn Nineveh. It's a word that has two clear meanings and we're, not, not, we're meant to have both in our minds. It can either mean to turn over or destroy something or it can mean to turn around or bring repentance That is our God's gospel. 40 more days and I will turn you over or I will turn you around. It's a clear and present message of his gracious patience. It's news of a second chance. It's a call to salvation. It's the very same message that Jesus gave our world in in Mark 1 where he says the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe. It's the same news our reading from 1 Peter earlier declares when it says the gospel of Jesus, it speaks of Jesus as a rock who will either raise you up and put you on firm footing or he will cause you to fall. 40 more days and this message, this God will turn you over or turn you around. And that's the way king tides work. One of the experiences uh, you learn growing up uh, in Australian uh, beaches is that when the water is pumping, when the the waves are big, you have two choices. If you've got yourself out in the waves and this huge wave is coming at you, you either try to fight against it or you turn round and ride it into the the shore. Uh, And if you fight against it, there is only one possible outcome and it's not pretty. But if you go with it, it is amazing. The king tide of God's grace is sweeping through our world and he is saying, turn around. When the king tide of God's grace sweeps through a life, every time that message is proclaimed, that is happening. It either turns that life around or it turns that life over. That's big, isn't it? Our message is clear. Salvation is from the Lord. Repent and believe. Here's the third thing that will happen if we go to our city. He will cause repentance and faith. The message is delivered and we see in verse 5 the sheer power of that message. Nineveh believes God to a man and a woman. 
And that belief is demonstrated in very practical and clear actions. Do you see it there in our verses? They fast, each one of them, the greatest to the least, seeking God's mercy. They put on sackcloth, grieving over their sin, turning away from their sin. Even the king. It's a great moment in verse 6. If you want to see what repentance, genuine repentance looks like, have a look at the king of Nineveh in verse 6. This is what is meant to happen when you respond to the gospel. He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in the dust. The false king bows before the true king as we all must do. And you notice uh, here with their repentance that nothing has been unstained in Nineveh by their wickedness, nothing left untouched. Even the cattle are dressed in sackcloth. All over Nineveh the effects of sin can be seen. God wants Nineveh to feel the weight of their sin, that their rebellion has done violence to his good world and it requires immediate change. Do you see what's happening in these verses? The need to repent implies that something major is wrong. Do you feel that in your city, in Sheffield? Does it feel that that Sheffield is in major trouble? Does Sheffield see itself that way? I mean, the crises that that often we speak of in our city are very different to the ones we're seeing here in this chapter, aren't they? The, The crises of petrol prices or too much snow or a lack of grit or football teams or the credit crunch. These are the crises that dominate our media. God wants our city to wake up. Football failure and petrol costs, so what? Sheffield's wickedness has reached God. Forty more days and Sheffield will be overturned. And I reckon this book asks who will go and wake them up? Especially when you see the fourth thing that I can guarantee will happen if we go to our city. He relents. Our God relents. You see, uh, Nineveh does wake up, don't they? As God's word comes to them, they believe and they repent from the greatest to the least. They cry out urgently, we're told in verse 8, just as the sailors did in chapter 1, just as Jonah did in chapter 2. They cry out in hope, do you see it there in verse 9, that maybe, who knows, that God may yet relent. And do you see God's response in verse 10? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction that he threatened. What are we meant to make of this? Can God be trusted if he changes his mind? Is he a fickle God? I mean, what's to stop him changing his mind again? Answer? God changes his mind because he never changes because his nature is always to have mercy. This is what he says in Jeremiah. He says, If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted or torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and I will not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. This is our God. He is utterly consistent. This is the heart we see in verse 10. It is a merciful, patient, relenting heart. It says, uh, 2 Peter says, when it says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 
True faith, taking God at his word and repentance will always be met with God's powerful mercy, always. How consistent is his mercy? Well, look to Jesus. Even as he is tortured, even as they pierce his body with nails, he shows mercy. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And surely it's at the cross that we can see God's unchangeable nature writ large. For there the true king of our world, just like the false king in this chapter, leaves his throne, comes down to the dust that he had made, that we have ruined. He comes down to die for us. There at the cross we see the king, the one whom and through whom all things were made, the one through whom and for whom all things were made. We see him take off his royal robes and strip naked and strung up, not for his sin, but yours and mine. God relents in our city because of this. Here at the cross you see the very epicentre of his salvation. Here at the cross you see where the king tide of grace begins. So as we finish, let me ask you the question the king of Nineveh asks in verse 9. Who knows if God will relent from his judgement? Who knows? You know. You know because you've seen it again and again and again. You know because he has relented with you again and again and again. That's why we're remembering what he has done tonight in communion because we know our God is like this. And surely knowing that gives us a wonderful reason to go to our city for our God. Well, there it is. We come to the end of chapter 3 and this wonderful story seems to have had all its loose ends tied up. The, the, the mission of Jonah has been amazingly successful. We can all go home. And then comes chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Uh, What on earth? Well, we'll find out next week. Uh, Let's pray together. I'm just going to leave a moment of quiet now for reflection on this passage and then David Middleton will lead us in prayers.